For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're grateful to our members who make all of this possible and hope that you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members get access to our expanded offering of exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member bonus briefs, and our DSR Daily Brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening at 5 p.m. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed that you can add to your podcast app of choice. Join now for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com and select Become a Member. And don't miss our upcoming mini-series featuring interviews with some of the key players from David's upcoming book, American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome to Deep State Radio. I'm Edward Luce of the Financial Times, standing in for David Rothkoff, who is rather surprisingly embarked on a round-the-world solo sailing trip. And I'm delighted today to be joined by Shannon O'Neill, who's Vice President of Studies and Nelson and David Rockefeller, Senior Fellow for Latin American Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations at CFR. And Shannon has a very timely and very interesting new book out called The Globalization Myth, Why Regions Matter. And I have to say, you know, as, as a Brit, and I'll get to this maybe a bit later in the conversation, as somebody from a country that's left the largest regional trading uh, and single market in the world. I'm particularly interested in this subject, but we're in North America. And of course, North America is home to NAFTA. And it's also got an administration, the Biden administration, which has recently taken a very aggressive, some would argue belated set of actions against China's semiconductor sector. Another issue I'd like to get into with Shannon. But let's start, Shannon, first of all, with the first half of your title, The Globalization Myth. Now, why is it a myth? Well, thanks, Ed, for having me, and, and good luck to David on his sailing adventure. Um, so why is it a myth? Well, when you look back at the last 40 years, you know, we talk a lot about globalization, and we see this juggernaut that spread across the world, and the world was flat, and, and companies and people and ideas and money all went abroad. But when you actually begin looking at the data, globalization was not as widespread or as penetrating as we often think. Uh, and you look back at these last 40 years, the years of the creation of global supply chains and, and this moving of manufacturing in the world, and there are only about two dozen nations that actually saw their economies transform with trade. So where trade as a percentage of GDP doubled or more. And there are almost 90 nations where trade as part of their, a part of their economy either stayed the same or it diminished. So they actually deglobalized over this time. So part of the myth is that it's just not as widespread as we often talk about. 
That's a very interesting point, because if you ask the average person on the street in large parts of America, maybe not so much the big cities, but in large parts of the heartlands, they would blame globalization for a lot of a lot of their woes, their post-industrialization environments they live in. Are you saying it's being unfairly scapegoated? I do say it's unfairly scapegoated. In fact, I start off the book, I grew up in Akron, Ohio. So one of those industrial, post-industrial towns at the time. And that's the story in Akron, Ohio, that globalization took away the tire industry, that jobs were lost, that people left. And, and part of its challenges was that. And I would argue that that's actually not what happened to Akron, Ohio and the hundreds of, of cities like Akron, Ohio. What they suffered from actually was limited regionalization, not globalization. And so for Akron in particular, those manufacturing jobs, they left in the 1970s and in the 1980s. In fact, the last tire came off an Akron factory in 1982 off a factory line. That was a decade before NAFTA began. And what you saw in Akron and, and many other cities was that because the United States did not regionalize the way other parts of the world were regionalizing when they're creating regional supply chains, making things across a few different nations, because they did not, they were unable to compete with imports from Asia, from Europe, from other parts of the world. So that is how I would frame it. The globalization scapegoat, it's actually, that's not what happened. It's because the United States still was trying to go it alone in manufacturing that they faced much stiffer competition and, and ultimately weren't able to compete. If the core of your argument, and I think it's correct, by the way, is that the more regionalized you are, the better able you, you are to cope with uh, the global economy and the more you can profit from it, and that America is actually less regionalized than the two really dynamic ripe peers, I guess, in the European Union and then in, in East Asia, then this tendency, again, in politics and sort of conventional wisdom to lump NAFTA in with, say, China's joining the WTO and just sort of hold them equally to blame in a sort of fairly vague way for the loss of American jobs is something that needs to be pushed back against. And of course, you're doing that and your book does that. But how do you get that point across to people? So I think what we should be talking about here is that not all trade is created equal. And some trade is better for U.S.-based companies and U.S.-based workers than others. And I would say that is regional trade. So one of the shifts over the last 40, 50 years is the creation of international supply chains. And the benefits of these supply chains is you can make goods that are higher quality at more affordable prices. And the way you're able to do this is because by spreading it out across countries, you can specialize. You can gain economies of scale. You can take advantage of differences in labor skills or labor costs, of natural resources, of access to capital, all kinds of things. And so the product you come up with is better. You can make it faster and you can make it cheaper. So it's, you can sell it to consumers all over the world. What you also see with these supply chains is that when supplier, when an assembly factory, say, opens up in, in another country, it opens up in China or it opens up in Mexico, they are much more likely to buy the pieces and parts that go into their goods from countries nearby. And in fact, the regionalization aspect that I talk about is really about the manufacturing process, even more than just the selling out to global consumers. So when you make things, you tend to make them together. So when a factory goes into China, they tend to buy things from Japan or South Korea or Thailand or Vietnam and other places. 
when you make some, when a factory goes in in Mexico, they tend to buy from U.S. suppliers and from Canadian suppliers. And in fact, just a piece of data on that: when an import comes into the United States from Mexico to the United States, so Mexican imports, on average, forty percent of that product was actually made in the United States, so by U.S. workers. When an import comes in from China, only four percent was made by U.S. workers, almost nothing. So that's because the supply chains that made that iPhone or that washing machine or or whatever other thing that's coming from China, a piece of clothing or the like, they have supply chains that are regional in Asia. When it comes in from Mexico, they're much more likely to buy from us, and that's why it matters. Yeah, I and mean, I know that a lot of Brits were surprised to discover after Brexit, you know, when there was this supposedly bold new era of forging trade deals with everybody other than the Europeans, they were surprised to discover that Britain's trade with Ireland was considerably larger than its trade with China. Ireland with a population of what, four or five million. And that's because of geography, right? A geography to some degree, but also cultural affinities. Yeah, it's a whole mix of those things. It's geography. It's, well, before Britain decided to do what Britain did, it was free trade agreements and reducing of tariffs and regulations. I was the movement of people and ideas across the various spaces. And it's a cultural understanding, same legal frameworks, all those sorts of things. And, you know, the regionalization of Europe, as I was was doing the research for the book, one thing that I found that was really fascinating is that, you know, we also tend to think of globalization as going to, you know, the lowest cost producer, the most efficient, you have to find the race to the bottom in terms of production. That's why you go to China or you go to Bangladesh or places. And when I was doing the research, I actually found these great examples in Europe, especially where you can make globally competitive products within Europe with higher wages, with more worker protections. You can get to this higher equilibrium. And let me give you one example. So today, the biggest and most profitable fast fashion company in the world is Zara. This is you know all over the world. They sell all kinds of. My daughters love their clothes. This is you know fast fashion, right? They sell. I was about to say, as as a as a father of a fifteen year old girl, I winced when the, the word Zara. When you you, you know it well, you've been there. Yes. So they sell half a trillion dollars worth of goods, but they're also the most profitable of all these fast fashion brands. So, and this is as we all know, notoriously a cutthroat industry in terms of pricing. And the way they do this is they don't source from Asia. The vast majority of their clothing is made in Europe. So they have found a way to make a regional model. They use automation. They use very flexible supply chains. They make smaller batches. So you don't have thousands of t-shirts. They have you know very particular t-shirts. So people go to their stores more often and they don't have to mark down because they can get things to market much faster. So they found another way. And regionalization has allowed, even in this very difficult industry with such thin margins, They found a way to win in this global race by producing regionally. It seems to me that there are a lot of myths here entangled up with globalization that that you'd need to and others need to to argue against to get to the place where I think rightly you you want people to get to. One of which is blaming these job losses on trading with foreigners or investing in foreign economy, whether it be Mexico or, or, or another country, as opposed to technology. Now, I know there have been studies that have shown there are certain areas of the Midwest where you can directly attribute manufacturing job losses to China joining the WTO. No such study, I, I don't think, is possible on NAFTA because there's been job losses here, but job gains there. And on, on net, I don't think NAFTA 
led to any deindustrialization. It led to, as you talk about, as you write about, it led to the regionalization of supply chains with gains and losses, but overall net benefit for the whole of North America. How do you go about explaining to people in a constructive way that works politically at a time when it's everybody's against globalization? And indeed, we all now think deglobalization is happening. And not only do we think that, we think it's desirable that deglobalization should be happening. So I think it's a bit the mindset and the way we think about this. And so I do think lots of these conversations are, we want to bring jobs home. We want to make sure things are made here in America. And, and that is true. And I am for that as well, right? I want to see the Akron, Ohio's thrive again, but I see the path to thriving. It has to be global. And in part, it's because of the future of consumer markets. It boils down, I think, to this. Do we want a slightly bigger piece of a smaller and even shrinking pie, which is the U.S. economy? Do we want to put up those walls and protect so that we're just going to be able to sell to U.S. consumers and those products are going to be more expensive, so consumers will buy less of them? Um, you know, if your car costs a couple thousand dollars more, you might wait to trade it in to get a new car. Or if that outfit costs $100 instead of $50, you might buy just one and not two. So, you know, stores, there'll be fewer stores, there'll be fewer clerks, there'll be less movement in the economy. Do we want that, which is the way we go if we think about just reshoring? Or do we want to be able to sell to the 8 billion consumers that are out there in the world? Do we want to have a chance at supplying those who, you know, the billion new people that are going to enter the middle class over the next decade, many of them in Asia. And I would say the answer is yes, for good jobs that politicians talk about and, and people like myself and you talk about that you want to provide more prosperity, you need to be able to sell to all those people out there. And the way you do that, the way you would make high quality and affordable products that people in China or Malaysia or France or Ireland would buy is that you need to have these regional supply chains because the rest of the world is making it that way. And so the U.S. needs to think that way too. And so the easiest way, and, and I think basically the, the most effective way, is to turn to our geographic neighbors with whom we already have a free trade agreement that we can build upon. And the benefit too, I would say, of Mexico and Canada is they have much more access to world global markets, tariff-free access to global markets than the United States does because we don't have that many free trade agreements. So if we can supply manufacturing that's happening in Canada or Mexico, we can sell into Japan or we can sell into Europe. We can sell into other places without paying tariffs with different regulations or fewer regulations than we can if we just as the United States try to export to them. Okay. So since politics makes it really hard for the Biden administration or any other to negotiate new trade deals with anybody, really, what you're recommending is strengthening NAFTA because NAFTA is actually fairly loose agreement compared to the European single market, or even what's happening with um, the regional um, economic groups in Asia. But is that easy to do? I mean, I know Trump, Trump renegotiated NAFTA and the USMCA, Azmaka, as some people call it. What did that do? That was in, what, 2018? And he got it passed because Nancy Pelosi swung behind it. What did that do in practice? So in practice, it at least reaffirmed NAFTA. So you still have the rules there. And you had, as you say, you had bipartisan support for it. In fact, Catherine Tai was, was one of the Democrats who's now in the U.S. Trade Representative's office who helped push it through the Congress. So you have an overall support for NAFTA, which is a great start, the now the USMCA. 
I think there where you could expand upon it is as the United States thinks much more about the national security aspects of its economy, as as we well should. We've just seen recently the U.S. putting export controls on semiconductors and equipment for semiconductors going to China. We see moves like the Uyghur Forced Labor Production Act, which is per Prevention Act, which is trying to limit products coming into the United States with forced labor. You see really a U.S.-China decoupling on, on a number of sectors. As you see that, and as you see the United States think about critical sectors for national security, to take a little bit of a broader view, how do we make semiconductor supply chains secure? How do we make pharmaceuticals? How do we make critical minerals? How do we make electric vehicle batteries that are secure? And we will find, and this is just actually the profit and loss and the brass tax of it, we will find it'll be very hard to do all of those things just in the United States. And if they're geographically concentrated in the United States, they're not going to be all that more secure, particularly to natural disasters and the like. So as we think about it, if we really want to protect our national security in these economic commercial ways, we need to think a bit broad, more broadly. We've had terms like friend shoring and ally shoring thrown around, and that is great. And we shouldn't exclude the Australias or the Europe's from, from those conversations. But the easiest partners and allies and friends will be those that are closer by where the cost for businesses for the commerce of it, the profit and loss will, will be less. That is where you can create more sustainable industries that make money, but also make the U.S. economy more secure. I'm glad you mentioned friend-shoring and ally-shoring because the finance minister of Canada, your partner in, in NAFTA, Christian Freeland, also a former colleague of mine, actually, at the Financial Times, recently made a speech here in Washington, D.C., calling for an economic NATO uh, which is a, it's a nice, it's a nice memorable phrase. And of course, it implies allies, you know, building supply chains within an economic NATO between friends, between like-minded um, countries. But that does cut across or against your point, which is, you know, Australia is, well, Australia isn't part of NATO, but I think she would have included it in her loose concept that even Europe is, you know, across an Atlantic of America's close NATO-like allies, only, only Canada is nearby. What you're arguing for is proximity is absolutely key here, isn't it? I mean, location, location, location. Yeah, I think there are different levels to it. And, you know, this call for NATO, there are aspects of economics that should be more global or perhaps be a group of friends, like an economic NATO. So, for instance, standard setting. You know, these matter a lot, whether the next new technology has certain kinds of plugs or certain kinds of protocols, that matters for whether the US or Europe gets an advantage over, say, Chinese companies. Uh, and so that kind of thing, you could imagine a, a, a NATO-like between, you know, Western powers or, or, you know, allies and friends sort of within democracies or the like. But when you get down to the actual manufacturing of products, when you get down to where the factory is going to be located, how are we going to make a product that you know, maybe some have national security interests like semiconductors, maybe some are just the regular electronics and the like that we use every day. But if you want those to be economically sustainable, commercially sustainable, so companies don't need subsidies in order to produce them, then you have to start thinking about these costs. And what we have seen over these last 40 years with the creation of international supply chains is that proximity really does tend to lower the cost. And if you have both the benefits of this Goldilocks middle of you, the benefits of economies of scale and specialization and the different, you know, different labor costs and the like across different countries, but you're not so far away that you lose the trust and coordination and other aspects that 
make products come to market faster and and more, you know, higher quality and the like. That's where I do think the proximity matters. And we've seen it with the US and its neighbors where there is integration, but much less than in other places. But we really do see it in Europe where the integration of the European Union has been vitally important in creating companies that that work well. And as you were saying at the beginning there, Britain deciding to pull itself out of that club was probably the worst economic decision, maybe not ever, but but it's on the list. Yeah, sadly, it's high up there. I stick my hand up. The implications of deepening within NAFTA, of becoming more like European single market, are, and, I, and you've, you've obviously written about this, that you need to improve links across NAFTA borders, including with Mexico, not just with Canada, but maybe especially with Mexico. And that involves it making, making the movement of people easier. Again, I sort of sense, uh, uh, you know, uh, a tripwire attached to a lot of semtex here in terms of politics in America, that the degree of xenophobia, particularly on the right, against any opening of the US, further opening of the US-Mexico border, anything that would make it easier for Mexicans to come and work legitimately, legally in the United States, as well as, of course, the undocumented, being a very difficult political hurdle to, to clear. How would you go about doing that? So this integration doesn't have to look like the European Union. So we're not talking about giving up sovereignty and creating courts and, and, and that sort of thing. And in fact, you look at integration around Asia, which is almost as integrated in terms of commerce and foreign direct investment flows and the like. And it was really bottom up. It came from CEOs and companies outsourcing in other countries and sometimes bureaucrats following them with, with development assistance and the like. But it really was driven by the private sector, not by diplomats. So you don't need to do that. But as you say, a big part of deepening integration between Mexico, the United States, and Canada would involve the movement of people. It would involve the need for immigration, some of it work immigration, you know, allowing people to follow the supply chains to the factory that's next in line and making sure that, that suppliers work well with, with their customers. That's part of it. Part of it would, would be people with skills and the like. And so this obviously is a huge challenge in the U.S. political system. It's a huge challenge right now for the U.S. economy. Over the last, you know, during COVID, we saw some 2 million immigrants not come to the United States, and we feel that in our labor market. We see it, I think, in our, in our universities, in our, in our innovation, in our productivity, not having those people come in. So I think there is a, a space for it and a clamoring from the private sector, at least, to, to bring these people in. But that is a big part of it. You know, also is the logistics side of things. You know, you would be able to make things cheaper and, and better if you can move things across the border. So investment in infrastructure that allows the crossing of these borders of, in ports and, and the like, that also is, is quite important. There is money for infrastructure. We see that from the infrastructure bill that was passed a year plus ago. The immigration one is going to be harder, but it is vitally important to think about North America as a continental workforce to attract companies to come back to North America if they've left. So to invest in, a, I guess, a, a, a really world-class revolving door, not a wall. I mean, I, I take it, I'm not, that isn't really a question. I, I'm, I'm summarizing what I think you, you're saying and what I think I agree with. Um, I'd but agree with that caricature, yes. <laughs> other sort of concern people have had in recent years, though not so much in the last five or 10, was the outsourcing of services to countries like India and the Philippines, you know, where a proficiency with English can enable low-level jobs to be outsourced and technology enables that too. Technology has leapt considerably 
forward since then. And we're now getting very plausible talk of much higher level jobs, service jobs being um, outsourceable, being able to be done remotely. And their geography doesn't really matter, right? Because because technology just just wants secure secure access to people, whether they they're themselves or whether they're holograms in meetings and all the kinds of things we can increasingly do now in, in realistic terms. What is your answer to that? So I do think we will see changes in the service sector, and services have been slower to internationalize. In many ways, partly some services need to be provided in person. Others, there's more barriers to to credentials, to services, and and, and to sort of providing them and the like. So I do think we will see some of this. And there's some great work um, by Richard Baldwin, who writes a lot about this, which who's a, who's a great thinker on these issues. But I would also say services, they will not be totally global. I think there are frictions there that goods face as well. Even if you're not moving physical products, there are frictions there. And in fact, some of the services that initially went abroad, the call centers from India, as you mentioned, where you, you know, you call up to get your, you know, bank account, you know, check some number and you're talking to someone in, you know, Bangalore or somewhere else there. You know, many of those big financial banks have actually re-brought back their services industries away from the Indias and elsewhere because it didn't quite match up. The customer service wasn't quite right. And, you know, I see this also in the technology space that if you want a rote website built, sure, you can go and, and get it done in in various parts around the world. But if you have something that's a little bit more custom, a little bit more value-added, you need to have somebody in a similar time zone, somebody who speaks your language, who sort of understands what you're going for and can work with you there. So I think that there is, in many ways, still a, a regional aspect to where some of these services are going. And then in this, the U.S. is actually one of the biggest service exporters around the world. This is a strength of the United States. You know, One of our big exports is education. So for every student who comes and studies in the U.S. in a university, that's actually a service export, right? When people come on vacation, same with Europe, that too is a service export. And so are so much of the intellectual property of the companies, of the brands that that are really a U.S. strength that are exports, that can be exports as well. So yes, services perhaps have a little bit more space to be global. There've been much less so far than, than trade, but I do think there is a for lack of a better term, a centripetal force that will keep them within places with similar cultures and values and languages and ties in ways that that still have a regional effect. Yeah, and maybe it isn't so much Bangalore or Subic Bay or wherever it is that we need to worry about as as artificial intelligence. I mean, uh, you know, I know lawyers periodically get panicked that you know AI can negotiate sort of basic legal contracts. People in my profession get panicked that their columns are going to be written by robots. Although I have to say the the couple of examples I've been given, you know, I mean, I don't think they would have even, you know, qualified to be to be running the Daily Mail. Yeah, they but wouldn't make the financial, financial times, times, that's for sure. But these panics are may it may be wrong to look to look abroad for that. It might be to do with AI rather than outsourcing. Just to sort of, um, we haven't got that much longer, but it seems to me that everywhere in the world is nostalgic, but particularly the West. And I'd, I'd argue particularly America and to some degree Britain and France is nostalgic for an era of blue collar manufacturing jobs. And we tend to conflate manufacturing competitiveness with those manufacturing jobs, whereas in reality, American manufacturing in many sectors has become more competitive. It just employs fewer people. And that, of course, has led to devastation of many communities. 
and to this politics of nostalgia and of scapegoating that you know has had a tremendous impact on America's view of itself and engagement with the world or lack of economic initiative I, I would argue with the world it is a deep seated feeling but it's not a practical it's not a program for job creation how do you make the jobs of the future something worth being nostalgic about in advance how do you talk to people about that so this gets back to the question of was is it tech or is it trade that led jobs abroad and the answer is it's a bit of both probably leans towards the tech side and so how do you prepare those in the United States and communities to embrace this tech side? Because right now, I would say there is a, a moment for the United States and for countries all over the world in that we are seeing a fluidity to global supply chains that we haven't seen for a generation. The sort of low-cost labor version and model is, is less appealing, in part because demographics are making places that used to be low-cost labor no longer so low-cost labor in large part because automation and technology is coming into manufacturing processes and the like and changing the cost structure so labor doesn't matter as much. We are seeing changes in what consumers want. They want things all yesterday and they want smaller batches. They don't want something that's mass produced. You're seeing geopolitical changes that are dividing up various countries and where you source from. And we're seeing climate change factor in. People don't want their things to come from so far away, right? There'd be essentially carbon taxes and the like that will make things more expensive. So all of this should be beneficial to big markets, the United States being the biggest market out there, and that things will want to come closer. They'll be easier to come closer. But the tech side is something that we'll have to deal with. So how do you prepare an American public, right? You need education that gives them the education for those jobs so they can take those jobs and do the kinds of jobs that are there. You need school not to stop at you know high school or college, but to to be there as part of your life, or at least some kind of education and, and training, that needs to be a different, just different way that we live our lives and that we think about the way we do things. I do think we have seen changes already in the United States. And one is that we talk a lot about bringing back blue collar manufacturing jobs, but when you look at polls and surveys of the kinds of things that kids wanna go into, manufacturing is not in the top three or four jobs. People don't wanna do that, right? They wanna do other kinds of stuff. So. So I think, can you make what we would have thought of as manufacturing jobs, can you make them startups and entrepreneurial? Can we put, make them in a way that is more attractive to the next generation that's going to take those jobs? I think that's, that's part of it. And then I also think in our political system more broadly, polls also show that a majority of Americans, sometimes a vast majority of Americans, actually are open to trade. They think trade is an opportunity, not a threat to them. So we need to change our political talkings and the way we talk about it rhetorically to actually match up with what Americans think and to talk about these opportunities. Because I do think if we want our kids, you know, I have a 14-year-old, you have a 15-year-old, if we want their generation to have a better life, to have more prosperity, to have more options, but this is the way to go. You have to open up to the world and you have to compete. You have to trade. You don't want to wall yourself off. That's an upbeat and, and very, um, in today's conversations, um, a uh, nice counterintuitive uh, way to uh, which to end our conversation. I, I think it's already had influence. I hear that David has changed his round the world sailing trip. He's now sailing to Cancun via Vancouver. So it's already had an influence on David's sailing expedition. He changed his onboard computer to to put him there. Right? He has, <laughs> yeah, he, and he's continuing to play whatever Warcraft or you know video games that he's playing. Your book, um, everybody should should be interested in this subject, and it's called The Globalization Myth, Why Regions Matter, and it's Yale 
University Press. That's correct, um, right, Shannon? So do go out and buy it. And these are really important topics that are more important than whether Kanye West is sane or not. Although I know that takes a lot of mind share, but we can do it. We can actually focus on important things too. And so thank you very much, Shannon. Uh, and I should end, of course, with David's usual ending by, by reminding listeners that Deep State Radio is a flagship podcast of the DSR network to get ad-free access and bonus content for all of our podcasts for just $5 a month. Go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on memberships. I suspect for the next DSR, David will be back from Cancun. Until then, thank you very much, Shannon, and uh, see you soon.